man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Please join me in prayer. God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for these parables that you give us to give us a foretaste, a foreshadow of that which is to come. May your spirit speak to us, your people, your children this morning through your words. By the work of your spirit, we pray. Amen. You know, when I was in, I think it was the fifth grade, I was uh, waiting for my brother to pick me up from this after school program. There I was outside waiting, sitting on a little bench, my little feet, you know, dangling from the bench at Chief Kamayakin Elementary School. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure how this happened, and maybe I'm misremembering. My memory is not the greatest, my wife will tell you. Um, but to my recollection, there were no adults around. They did, everyone just, I guess, you know, they punched in, they punched out, they're home, and I'm just there by myself, sitting, waiting to be picked up. And uh, in, my, in my mind, as a young boy, my, I was there for hours, you know, waiting. And I don't know exactly how my family realized that I wasn't there, maybe because it was quiet around the house. Um, or uh, likely they were sitting down for dinner and I realized, oh wait, we're missing somebody. Who was supposed to go get him? And then, you know, my brother comes up and gets me and, uh, you know, I still carry those scars today every time someone's a little late, you know, am I forgotten? Um, you know, and uh, but the reality is, I think oftentimes this is actually how we think of God's kingdom. Sometimes it feels like God's forgotten us, like he's forgotten to come and, and pick up his children. He said he was coming. He said he was bringing his kingdom to, to reign on earth with all its justice and beauty and the, the destruction of sin. And yet, here we are, still waiting. So you need any time now, any day now, Lord. And I think the reason why we often feel this way, angsty about the waiting, uh, is because we still live in a world that is very much corrupted with the effects of sin. And we desperately want and need our world to be made right. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. I mean, every aspect of it has actually been corrupted by sin. Every area of life, the entire cosmos has been corrupted by it. And it's, it doesn't take me much to probably convince you of this truth, right? Your bodies, they break down. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, what did I do yesterday? My, everything's sore. And you're like, wait, I know what I did. I got out of bed. You know, and so that's just the way our bodies work. They pain uh, comes, disease, decay. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Your body's not meant to decay. Not only that, but you have broken relationships with spouses, with friends, with family. Harmony replaced with discord. Friends, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's lawlessness in the world, war, greed, injustice. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Creation itself is broken, earthquakes, floods. This is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, and the, the reality is the, the corruption that we experience in life isn't, isn't just the, the corruption that we're victims of. You know, it's everyone out there is messed up, but if everyone was just like me, we'd all be fine. But we're actually, if we're honest, active participants in the corruption. We too hold grudges. Our words cause discord 
our actions cause division. We are part of the problem. The reality is the corruption isn't just out there, but it's, it's in our own hearts, in our own lives. Every aspect of life has been tainted by this thing that we call sin. And friends, this is precisely why Jesus had to come in the first place, because we need one from the outside to come who hasn't been corrupted by sin, to come and make everything right, to bring his redemption, to establish his kingdom and his rule uh, so that it has no end. And this is exactly what he has come to do. This is what he promises to do. Right? The kingdom of God is coming through Christ to redeem all of creation. Uh, so, the, so the question remains for us, though, well, how does that actually happen? And that, you know, we started this four-week series on the kingdom last week, asking this question, well, how does God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Last week, we talked and focused on the, the prayer aspect, that it begins in prayer. Uh, and this week, the question is, well, how does this actually happen? How does Jesus actually bring his kingdom to bear? How does redemption happen? What should we be looking for as a people? What do we expect and here in one of my favorite kingdom parables, I don't know if I'm allowed to have favorites, don't tell anybody, but this is my favorite kingdom parable. Uh, Jesus tells us actually what redemption is going to look like. He, he gives us clues as to what we should be looking for. And the, the two images he gives us are that of a mustard seed and that of leaven. Right? His, his kingdom is unexpected. Right? Things aren't always the way they seem. And his kingdom brings about a counter-corruption to the anti-kingdoms of this world. And so we're going to still look at those two things as we asked uh, the similar questions last week about how God's kingdom comes on this earth as it is in heaven. So the first answer is this, that God's kingdom comes in unexpected ways. God's kingdom comes to us in unexpected ways. Look with me here at this first bit of this parable, verse 18. He, he says this, he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. You know, there's actually a lot of interesting things to, to pick up on here. I mean, the first aspect of this is kind of the, the obvious side. It's right. The kingdom of God is this seed, this something small, but it grows into something large like a tree. Um, and I mean, even that aspect alone gives us but big tidbits about the nature of God's kingdom, that it grows in unexpected ways that, that oftentimes it looks small and unimpressive like a seed planted in a garden, but in time it grows and becomes a tree that even birds can come and rest in. But as you kind of look at this a little bit more, it starts to get actually really fun, I think, uh, because, spoiler alert, mustard seeds actually do not grow into trees. They grow into bushes. They can be Big bushes, like eight to nine feet tall sometimes, which is pretty tall, but they're not trees still. So what is Jesus getting at here? Uh, does he not know about the botanical classification of, of a mustard bush? Do the people there that he's talking to, are they just, you know, not smart enough yet because they don't have the internet? Because that made us smart, right? Um, that's a joke. Uh, it didn't. Um, but are they just, are they just not aware of that the mustard seeds don't grow into trees? What's happening here? Well, of course, Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. Of course, the people there actually understand that mustard seeds uh, do not produce trees. So he knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying, listen, my kingdom starts off as a, as a seed for a bush. But once it is full grown, it becomes a tree where birds find their rest. This is kind of powerful image of this unexpected thing. But what does this actually mean? Where is this drawing from? And this is where I think what Jesus is alluding to there's a couple of different prophets in the Old Testament who actually talk about trees and birds resting in them. 
The, the one that is probably the most easy for us to, to connect to this is in Daniel 4. And I think Jesus is actually alluding to Daniel 4. And in Daniel 4, there's this riddle about the birds finding refuge in trees. And the birds are actually images, uh, representations for nations. So it's like these other nations can find their rest in this tree. And the tree that it's talking about in Daniel 4 is actually the tree of Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the nation of Babylon, if you remember that they were in exile, uh, the, the Jewish people were in exile uh, in Babylon at this time. Daniel's interpreting dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what this dream is about, these birds finding rest in this giant tree. And uh, his tree is to be said great in height. And I think Jesus is actually invoking this image for us, bringing it to the foreground, applying it to his kingdom. Um, and he's, he's saying, listen, this, is a, a, this tree is a, is a resting place for other nations. So when Jesus says the words about tree and birds of air finding refuge, he's alluding to this. And, and by comparison, though, you know, mustard bush is rather pathetically small compared to a mighty tree. To say that birds of the air find refuge in the branches of this bush, just like they do in this imperial tree that is Nebuchadnezzar, sounds laughable. It's a, it's a parody of sorts. And I think this is exactly Jesus' point. The things that look mighty to us, the things that look mighty to the world, the trees of the world that look strong and everlasting will one day be torn down. Nebuchadnezzar himself is eventually humbled and cut down. His tree is no more. But I think the reality is that Israel struggled with its status in the world. It struggled being a bush. It, temp it was tempted to despise their size um, and despise being under the thumb of, of Rome, who was ruling at the time. Uh, right? They're thinking to themselves, maybe, listen, we're the ones that are supposed to be the source of life in this world. How can we do that when we're under the thumb of another uh, emperor, with, with Caesar? We're supposed to be a blessing to all nations. And in their humbled state, I think they're tempted to actually model themselves after the mighty nations of the day. Maybe think, well, at least those nations, at least Rome looks like a tree. We don't. We're a little, little bush, a little shrubby bush. So how are we supposed to be God's kingdom when we have no power, when we have no influence, when we look the way we look? Jesus is saying, listen, my kingdom is like this. You may feel like a shrubby little bush. You may look like it. But in God's kingdom, things are not always what they seem. God uses the weak to shame the strong. Despite appearances, you, O Israel, despite appearances, you, O church, O St. Andrews, you are the tree in which the birds of the air will find rest, where the beasts of the fields find shade, where the nations will find refuge and rest. God's kingdom comes in unexpected ways. Appearances are deceptive, and in his kingdom... When it seems like nothing is happening, nothing is growing, that is often the clue that something is actually on the move. The church, he tells us, is actually the central tree of the world from where it is spreading. And wherever the church spreads, God's kingdom spreads, and he is slowly bringing peace and refuge to the nations. Appearances are deceptive. You know, honestly, oftentimes in, in, these, in these parables, People uh, don't understand them. They're confused. And I think this is why God's kingdom is a mystery and why some people don't understand because it is backwards, because it is upside down, because the things that look strong, that look mighty, are often the, th are the things that don't last. I mean, this parable is actually proven to be true. If you look at, at history, like the mighty tree of this day was Rome. It has risen. 
It has fallen. It is no more. Other nations came after. They too have come and gone. Our own country will one day come and go. And what, despite all of this and all the chaos of the early church moment and the persecution, what has continued to grow and flourish around the world? What's the church? It's God's people. The church, which started as this little seed of these 12 apostles and then grew into a little bush. They were beaten. They were killed. They were hunted. But they, despite it all, grew and continued to grow even in harsh conditions. In fact, what you often find is the harsher the conditions for the church, the faster and stronger it will grow. It is resilient. The mustard bush is the central tree of the world. You know, we're, we here at St. Andrews are part of that tree. We may not look like it. We may not feel like it. We may not be impressive to behold, but we are part of this tree that is meant to bring life to the world. That we might be a place of refuge from a world that's struggling in corruption. That we might be a beacon to the redemptive power that's found in Christ. Bringing that redemption to bear in the world. Because it is when the church is at its lowest and seemingly most unimpressive. When it's most weak that it's at its strongest. And, uh, and this is true because we, as his people, follow the pattern of Christ. And when was Christ at his strongest? It was when he appeared weakest, right? When he was dying on the cross, it is at that point of his deepest humiliation that he was most glorified. It's at the point of death that the centurion that was guarding the cross finally saw him and cried out, truly, this is the Son of God. Just as this is true of Jesus, so it's true of his people. Our glory is seen in our humility. Things aren't always what they seem. We might not look like a mighty cedar. We might not feel like one. But we are the tree that is in the center of the world. We are the place where nations will come and find the rest. This is the only hope for the world, is the growth of the church. This is what God is growing in the world as the church continues to grow and spread until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. Although this, what I'm talking about, is slow, it's often extremely unimpressive, the fact that we are worshiping God, the same God of Scripture, the Israelites were worshiping, and Washington State proves that this is actually true. Friends, we are the far corners of the earth that Jesus was talking about in the, the Great Commission. Uh, think about where Israel is. Is that anywhere close to us where Jesus was? No. It's on the other side of the world. We are the far reaches. This is working. It is spreading. It is growing. It is slow. It took 2,000 years to get here. And it might take another 2,000 years to spread to the next corners of the earth. But it is happening. God has not forgotten us, his people. He has not abandoned us, but he's actually bringing us into his kingdom and using us to build his kingdom as he continues to transform us from bushes to trees. And this trains us to look for his kingdom in unexpected ways, that things aren't always what they seem. And I think you actually instinctively know this. If I asked you, when have you grown the most in your life? I, I can almost guarantee you will tell me a story of hardship. It's when you were under the pain, under foolishness, dealing with your own stuff. Those are the places, it's actually the dark places in our life that we actually grow. We know this. Things aren't always what they seem. So God's kingdom comes in unexpected ways as Jesus is turning his people into a tree that the nations will find refuge. It's like a new tree of life. The question still remains, how does this actually happen? I think the first parable gives us a, a glimpse of... Um, of, uh, of what is happening in the church, that it's this growing kingdom that will 
be a refuge for everyone. And I think the second aspect of this parable here actually answers the how. It tells us how, how this will happen. Uh, which is the second point here, is that, is that God's kingdom comes through counter-corruption. God's kingdom comes through counter-corruption. Look with me, verse 20 to 21. Let's read this again. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And I, I love how simple this image is. Even if you've never made bread before, you've likely uh, eaten it before. Uh, sorry, gluten-free people. It's probably not, I don't know what gluten-free bread tastes like, but it's probably not as good as this bread is. Uh, but this concept is simple. His kingdom is like the leaven that a, a baker uses to leaven the bread. Right? Leaven's this active raising agent um, like yeast that infects the dough to make it rise, to make it nice and, and fluffy. And uh, you can't just have part of your bread leavened, but eventually the leaven will work and infect the whole loaf. Right? As the dough is worked, and worked into the bread, leaven is everywhere. You can't distinguish leaven from the rest of its ingredients. And Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of God is like. It corrupts the dough of the world until it is everywhere. Where there's no place where you can look and, and, and not see the kingdom of God. I think what makes this image even more surprising than just the, the beauty and the totality of that uh, is the use of leaven in a, in a positive way. Although leaven isn't always used to represent bad things and evil in the world, it often was. Uh, this is actually a very rare moment for Jesus to use leaven and, and make it a, a positive thing. Uh, for instance, some of the, the biggest festivals in the Jewish year actually revolved around unleavened bread. Uh, they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Also, we know it as the Passover was where Israel was to put away old leaven. So they put away the, you know, they were in Egypt and they didn't want to take the things of Egypt with them. And so it was this symbol of like putting idolatry, the things they'd be tempted to worship foreign gods, putting them to the side. And so because of this, they ate unleavened bread to symbolize that they wouldn't be leavened with the world of Egypt. Similarly, in the altar in the temple, no leavened bread was ever placed there. You know, Jesus himself, actually in other places, warns of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. So it's often leaven in the Bible is used as this negative thing. And now Jesus is actually using it to describe his kingdom. He's saying just as a, a little leaven, right? Like Adam and, Adam's and, and, and Eve's disobedience brought about the leaven that corrupted the world. So God's kingdom actually works in a similar fashion as Jesus brings a counter leaven with him. It's a counter corrupting agent that is spreading until one day it will outlast and expel all the corruption of this world. His leaven is the leaven of redemption. It's the leaven of renewal, of restoration. And I think there's a couple interesting implications here, and it's the, the time and the strength of the kingdom. First, uh, first of all, the, the corruption of the, the kingdoms of man that we feel, feel in our world uh, today that seems so strong, one of the promises in this is that those corruptions will not last forever. They will have their day. The corruption in your own soul and in your own life and the rest of the world, those things will one day come to an end. There's a time limit on it. One kingdom will win out, which I think leads to the, the, the implication, second implication here of this, which is that of strength, that Jesus' kingdom is the stronger kingdom. His leaven is stronger and will counter-corrupt all of the leaven of the world. Right, the image here is, of, is almost of Jesus, the great baker, who is kneading the bread of his counter-corruption until that's complete, and there's no evil left. He's redeeming all creation. His leaven is so strong 
that as it's mixed into the world through his church, it can't help but corrupt all creation. His kingdom cannot help but grow on earth as it is in heaven. Where once evil was the strongest corruption agent around, now Christ is, and his leaven cannot be defeated. The trees of his kingdom cannot be cut down. It is coming on earth as it is in heaven. It will happen. Uh, you know, this is actually one of the reasons some people ask, why do you guys have leavened bread in your worship services? Because in the New Testament, uh, when Jesus, you know, instituted the Lord's Supper, he used unleavened bread because it was a Passover meal. Well, it's actually because of this parable. Um, and, and actually, for the first bit of the church, everyone used leavened bread because it was like, hey, we're, we're, the, we're the leaven of the kingdom. We're celebrating the kingdom of God that's coming into earth, just like this leaven is in this community. So that's why the church historically has actually always used uh, good leavened bread. And what this does for us, I think, is twofold. For one, this image helps strengthen our faith and our hope, um, right? teaching us that our perception of reality is not always accurate. These parables help, help tune our senses. They're like tuning forks of sorts that help train us to see how God's kingdom is actually growing and spreading so that we don't lose heart in the midst of present trials. This parable strengthens our faith and our hope. You know, many people will tell you, listen, the world is getting worse. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Whatever that means. I actually don't know what that means. But it's what people say when they say things are really bad or they're getting really bad. Uh, but it's easy for us when things are going bad and we're, our perception of things is going bad to give in to despair, right? And Jesus is saying, things aren't what they seem. Don't give in to despair. My kingdom is growing. Listen, there are more Christians on this earth now than there were people alive when Jesus walked this earth. It is working. It is growing like leaven, like a seed. It is growing. Things aren't always what they seem. So this parable is meant to help train our senses, that we don't give in to fear, that we don't give in to despair, but we hold on with hope and faith, trusting that this is actually working. Real time, it is. But second, this also teaches us what to expect in the time between times. You know, the kingdom of God is coming on earth. It is actively descending, and yet it's not fully here yet, and so we still experience corruption in our lives. And it helps us teach us uh, what to expect in this time that we're in, the time between times. Right, the seed of the kingdom is still a mere sapling. Right, the baker is still kneading the leaven into the loaf. And the old kingdom, right, the original corruption will not go quietly into the night. But the leaven of the old kingdom is actually going to fight against you. Because you are a threat to its existence. Like if, if the kingdom of God spreads and it's everywhere, then the kingdom of, of man is no more. And it doesn't want that. And so it will fight against you. This isn't new for us. Right, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders of Jesus' day saw Jesus actually as a corrupting agent. He was disrupting the order. And so they killed him. This is not even new to Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, God would send, you know, uh, uh, what are they called? Prophets, that's it. He would send prophets to his people to speak to them, to say, stop worshiping false gods, guys. Come back to me. And, you know, I was just, and, and they treated those prophets like corrupting agents. You know, even I was just reading in 1 Kings when uh, King Ahab sees Elijah as a man that's corrupting the people. Elijah's the great prophet who fought Baal, right? And he dumped water on the altar and prayed and God, you know, devoured it. And, uh, but the, the thing that King, King Ahab actually says to Elijah, says, you're the man that's causing trouble for my people. The trouble he's trying to cause is turning them back to worship of Yahweh. 
to the world, you and I are seen as corrupting agents, which means expect to be hated by the kingdoms of this world because you are a threat to the kingdom of this world's very existence. The more the church grows and infects the world, the more the power of the enemy shrinks and the more it fights against us. So question then is, well, how do we actually nurture this little sapling of the kingdom that is growing? How do we encourage the leaven to spread? And I would say this parable also gives us a hint at that, and it, the, the kingdom grows through just normal, everyday activities. I call them mustard seed activities, leaven activities, the, the, the ordinary things of loving your spouse, loving your neighbor, raising your children in the discipline of the Lord, fellowshipping with the local church, following in obedience to God's law, feasting at Uh, on Christ at his table. It's through these ordinary, kind of bushy lives of the church that God actually transforms us into this tree. It isn't this once in in a generation preacher, it's not the mega church, it's not the big things that do this. It's the ordinary, everyday work of churches like ours, of people like you, changing diapers and whatever it is that you do in your days. All those things wrapped up, being faithful, It's through those ordinary faithful acts that God's kingdom actually comes, those mustard seed activities. You know, as I was thinking about this, it's no wonder then that those are often, it's those ordinary places of life that are most attacked by the enemy. One of the hardest places of our lives is often marriage and raising children. Our enemy knows that the way to try to chop down the tree The way to disrupt your faith is to disrupt those simple things that are the kind of cornerstones of the institution of God's people, attacking families. Now, actually, this goes back to even to the call of Abraham. When when Abraham was called by God, his family was called to bless all the families of the earth. Satan knows that the greatest threat to him is families raising their children to follow Christ, of churches doing the faithful ministry of discipling one another. This is why that is so hard. And I know it's hard for everyone in this room. You can't lie to me. I know it's hard. It's hard for all of us. But this should train us to to learn how to expect that. And also train us to learn how to fight for it, to not give up on these things. But the most important things uh, in life are, are, are never easy. And this parable trains us to know where the fight's gonna be the hardest. So this is kinda like, this is where you need to build your battle lines is in these places. Uh, And thankfully, he also gives us a community to fight alongside each other with, to help fight that fight together. You know, there's just one final aspect of this parable that I can't ignore that speaks to another aspect of a work that I want to point out. Uh, And it's, the other aspect is this, is what does dough become? It's not a trick question. Dough becomes bread, right? No baker makes dough and just throws it out and then moves on with his day. No, you, you make the dough to make the bread. And then you make the bread, and then what happens? Well, then you slice it up while it's still hot. You put some butter on it so it's like nice and melty, and then you eat it, and it's delicious. Uh, You know, and in John 6, you know what Jesus tells his people? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me will never grow hungry. This is how strong and how good his leaven is. He has come that we might feast on him and never grow hungry. Well, and how was Jesus made into this bread of life that people could feast on? It was actually through his death. You know, death is actually the pinnacle, the peak of the corruption that we experience in this world. And Jesus, like the one uncorrupted man, what does he do? 
He actually puts himself under the corruption of sin, under the corruption of death, taking the corruption of all the sin of the world on himself that he might destroy its power and its hold on us in his resurrection, destroying the, the shackles of death. So Jesus himself is actually the leaven. He is the seed that becomes the mighty tree of life and he invites the world out of the corruption of sin to feast on him and to have life abundant. He is the bread of life. He is the refuge of nations. And as we are called his body as his church, we're called to be that in the world. That the world is leavened through this pattern of death and resurrection. The world may hate us for what we believe. They may think we're crazy for believing in things like virgin births and resurrections. And even still, we're called to serve and love our neighbors, laying our lives down for them, offering the bread of life that can only come through Christ. And we can do that freely because he's offered it freely to us. This is why Jesus feeds us, that we can go out and feed the world. This is how the birds of the air find refuge in our branches. This is how the ends of the earth are leavened with the kingdom. And and as we do this, we will confound the world because we do not make sense to them. But the thing is, you and I have to be different. Otherwise, what good is the bread we offer if it's the same as every other bread that's being offered in this world? The ways of the kingdom of God don't look like the ways of the world. God's kingdom comes slowly, it comes silently, it often comes imperceptibly, and even when it comes, it doesn't necessarily overwhelm us with its grandeur, does it? Because that's not the kind of kingdom we we expect or want, but it is the kind of kingdom that we should expect from a king who brings his kingdom through a cross. Amen. Pray with me. God, we give you thanks for the surety of your kingdom. Give us hope and faith that we might learn to expect what you've taught us to expect. That we would have eyes trained to see that things are not always what they seem. Strengthen us, we pray, in these truths that we might be a light and bread to the world at great need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.